Hello and welcome to Scandia Day's last week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI text newsletter at lastweekin.ai for more articles. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov, almost a doctor with my PhD being finished at Stanford and working at an AI startup. This is like a recurring thing at the beginning of every episode. Andre gets tantalizingly closer to officially being a PhD. This Saturday, <laughs> I'm officially done. It's happening. Okay, yeah. cool. So unless you do something really, really bad, you will be a PhD by the Saturday. Awesome. Um, well, I'm Jeremy. I'm your other host. I, uh, I focus mostly on AI safety and uh, AI policy stuff, AI counterproliferation, AGI type alignment things um, at a AI safety startup that I co-founded called Gladstone AI. I also have a book, Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Hey, what a plug. All right. Um, yeah, what do we have this week? What's going on? You know, I actually was thinking before we dive into it, uh, our listeners might find it interesting to hear about our new process for mm-hmm. doing the podcast. because uh, under the hood. A little under the hood, because it is actually very relevant. So uh, we have actually found it very tough to find the time to take the notes and choose the articles. It takes hours in preparation time. So for the last two weeks, we implemented a little bit of code where we just sort of make a list of articles we think are interesting and then get a little Python script to generate the notes for us via ChatGPT. Uh, which was super easy and works pretty well. We do have to adjust a little bit and and make sure we get things right, but it actually has sped up preparation by hours. Uh, has, so. We should we should flag. We do read the article. <laughs> it's yes. just a matter of like you know the note the detailed note taking on the articles, so that when we're actually like bantering about it, we don't just like forget really important details because it's been a while since we read the post. It's just a flag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's fun just to see how we are integrating AI into this AI podcast, right? Next week we're going to be entirely avatars generated by the the next version of GPT four. So yeah, n- next time where you cannot co-host for some reason, I'm just going to replace you with yes. a, an AI version of you, and it's going to be just as good. I'm sure. Oh, I knew I should have unionized. <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, podcasts are coming next, I guess. Um, yeah. And then. Just to chat a little bit about listener comments and corrections, we had a very nice review on Apple Podcasts by Cyberstalker. Uh, yeah, saying we cover so many articles and we have, and it's it's kind of tiring actually to talk about so many articles, but it's good to hear that people appreciate that quantity. And then someone on Substack commented that the audio quality on the last episode is terrible and i i'm oh. sorry about that that was on me i think we are as a issue of recording and so the audio file wasn't great but this week hopefully is going to be way better if not we've agreed that andre will be replaced with gpt5 so either way yeah i'm just gonna regenerate the audio based on <laughs> a transcript right, yeah. with my voice <laughs> you guys sound so much more insightful yeah i know <laughs> And then we had an email from, uh, I think, Ettore, 
who just mentioned that some of these language models and terms we've been using actually are nicknamed after South American animals. Oh. So we've been saying Vicuna. I think it's Vicunia. Uh, so good to know. Yeah, we, we do want to pronounce things right. And that is cool to know that oh, yeah, Vicunia. Alpaca. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh-huh. And then just one last comment from Gopal, who uh, heard our call for feedback and our question specifically on whether people appreciate our news coverage or our commentary. And this feedback was that it, it is nice to have our insights and news and not just you know listing off news that you can find elsewhere. So yeah, that's great to hear, and we appreciate that feedback, and I guess we will keep doing some of this commenting that we've been doing. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. And uh, anyway, really good to know. It's kind of, it's always embarrassing when you find out you've been butchering the pronunciation of, uh, of a word, but uh, thank you, Ettore, for, uh, for your, your good uh, vicuña. I'm, I'm probably mm. butchering that still, though. I think it's better. It's, it's better. better. All right. So as always, we do appreciate all the feedback. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai or comment on Substack or Apple Podcasts or YouTube or lots of places. Uh, so if you have any ideas, feedback, uh, anything, uh, we would love to see it. And and mom, you you don't have to comment on the the Apple Podcast thing. You can just send me an email. Sorry, she, uh, <laughs> it's okay. We'll we'll deal with it offline. Exactly. Well, let's do a quick roundup of what we were talking about this week. We'll have some tools and apps announcements of some more things you can use by Adobe and WordPress and Google and applications and business. We'll be talking about some startups going out of business and some more news about Adobe and Google and OpenAI as usual. We'll again have only a couple of stories in open source and a lot of stuff we found mm. interesting in research. So we'll really have to uh, <laughs> go quick on that one. But so many cool research things this week. And then in policy and safety, we'll be talking about some concerns about jobs, as has been a common theme, some funny stories about lawsuits and, and lawyers and some bills going through uh, Congress. And then lastly, in synthetic and media uh, art, we'll be talking about some text-to-video and some policies from nature and just some fun things. Starting off with tools and apps. First, we have Teaser's AI dating app turns you into a chatbot which is kind of amusing. So Teaser AI uh, is a new dating app and it tries to imitate the user's personality based on their answers to questions and how they talk while using the app. And it allows five back and forth messages with AI that like, I guess, automates chatting <laughs> for you. Uh, and um, yeah, it has launched with a subscription option that includes this AI-driven automatch feature. It's only been out for a week, so not too much uh, news on this yet, but funny idea for sure. Yeah. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever been tired of the dating part of dating? That annoying part where you 
converse with another human being to get to know them? What if you could converse with a chatbot who is not human at all? Like, that's kind of like what this is. It feels very Black Mirror to me. Like, they showed some examples of the interactions, and it's like, like the vibe seems to be you can you can do a quick trial run of somebody through this quick interaction. This chatbot is, like, maybe fine-tuned on their personality or whatever, and, like, yeah, that, that seems like kind of weird. It also plays into even more this idea of like the commoditization of the dating pool. Like, you know, when you use like, I haven't used these apps, full disclosure, and I'm a happily married man. But, uh, you know, if you go on the uh, the Tinders, I'm told by the children that if you go on the Tinder, you, um, you end up like feeling kind of like everybody's a commodity. Like you can date this person, date that person, their trading cards, whatever. And... This seems to take that to a whole other level. It like hyper commoditizes because you don't even have to like spend your time exploring the potential match with that person. Um, I, maybe this is just a cynical take. I'm like 32 and I'm getting way too old. But like that was the the vibe that I distilled from that at least personally. Yeah, I think it's not necessarily a terrible idea. It's just about implementation. So I could see this being done in a way that actually made sense. For instance, you know, on OkCupid, you can have really long profiles of lots of text. And if this was more of a mm. sort of question answering thing of like, I would like to learn a little bit more about you. Let me ask the AI uh, about, you know, details uh, or interests or things like that, favorite whatever, that would make sense, right? Because that's before starting a chat for real, you can just get some more idea of who this person is, um, maybe get suggestions on openers and things like that. But this whole notion of having an AI imitate you and, and chat for you is super weird. And this article includes some pretty, pretty amusing details of conversations like, uh, this uh, offer asked, is weed legal where you live? Uh, and this AI said that in Texas, it's legal, even though it's not. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some funny stuff in these examples. There's some screenshots on here. So yeah, I think kind of terrible idea or at least implementation of the idea. But uh, now with so many AI startups uh, pumping up, this is like a six-person team, we'll be seeing a lot of these kind of amusingly Black Mirror type uh, ideas popping up, I think. Yeah, and I think we're going to learn a lot about humans in the process. Like, what's the equilibrium that we end up settling on in the market? Like, does you know do people actually end up using this as a convenience tool to quickly get to know you or does it turn into just like oh man like i can extend my reach to like talk to a hundred people and uh kind of at a shallow i don't know but either way i think it's it's a very interesting experiment in human psychology yeah it'd be very dystopian if like an influencer or you know media figure started using an ai to interact with fans right and oh you could God. easily see that going there so you know, you know something when i was going through yc back in 2018 there was a company that was in our batch of doing that they were like we're gonna basically make up a, a chat bot of like famous people and you know don't bother the famous person they're just gonna like automatically engage in interactions with you and you'd like subscribe to the service uh, I think that they shut down. <laughs> so that was either because, you know, GPT-3 hadn't come out yet uh, or for other reasons. Well, I'm sure some people are working on that now. <laughs> Very true. Uh, our next story is LinkedIn launches generative AI tool to write ad copy. 
And so this is a tool called AI Copy Suggestions that you can use to, well, automate your writing for uh, ad campaigns on the platform. And essentially, like you can use it uses data from LinkedIn to generate a bunch of text, introductory text headlines for ads, and gives you the option to change uh, the content or keep the content aligned with uh, the brand language that you want. And it's all based on OpenAI GPT models in the back end. Um, kind of interesting. I mean, I think one of the big things that this portends, right? Once you have automa automatically generated ad copy, you can now loop your ad copy into your optimization loop, like directly. So essentially, if you think about how this has gone historically, you had a bunch of marketing copywriters who sit at a desk and they look at the stats that come in from their like Facebook ads. And then they go, oh, okay, let's try tweaking the ad copy like this. Let's try tweaking it like that in this very slow human way. And they're not making optimal use of the, the inbound data that they get. They're not optimizing as hard as they could on that signal, whereas now you have this automated writing thing. So you can actually like optimize through the writing process too, like you have an AI essentially own the end-to-end -end optimization, which I don't know, I would expect to lead to like pretty significant, at the very least significant decreases in marketing spend um, because you're not paying for that writing, but also in potentially vastly more effective marketing copy um, just because of that extra optimization, yeah. For sure, and and this is interesting. I think in part because this was one of the first business categories to really take off, even before ChatGPT. Right. Once we had GPT three, we had companies like Jasper. I think multiple startups that were just about you know let us write ad copy for you, automate that part of the process. Now that's directly built into LinkedIn, and I'm sure it will be built into Meta and Google, and a lot of these places. So. Um, makes a lot of sense, you know, make buying ads more frictionless. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of funny that these existing companies that have popped up since GPT-3 might be suffering because of it. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. It's always surprising to see, you know, we've talked about this before, but like, who are the winners and losers in the whole like AI, generative AI race, and the question of whether it's the model developers or the people who build apps on top of the models and like where the advantage is hiding. And I mean, this in retrospect seems obvious. I guess everything seems obvious in retrospect. But uh, yeah, dark day maybe for the, the Jaspers of the world who have to now contend with homegrown um, kind of uh, platform native uh, generative AI tools. Indeed. On to the lightning round. First, we have Adobe Express gets generative AI for flashy flyers and social videos. That's pretty much the story. Adobe is continuing its pretty fast rollout of AI features now with this Adobe Express app where you can make posters, flyers, general sort of visual design things. And the two new AI tools will allow the user to add images and text effects from a text prompt. And this is available in free or premium versions. Uh, Adobe Express is available in those two versions. And it's still in beta testing, but you know, again, pretty reasonable, logical way to integrate AI for Adobe. Yeah, it feels like an, another example of that uh, sort of same categories that LinkedIn um, generative AI tool we just talked about, right? We're seeing the platforms start to like gobble up more and more of the generative AI stack and just serve these things up as features rather than having you know, a different company do this. So kind of an interesting centralization of, of power thing. 
Next up, WordPress has a new AI tool that will write blog posts for you, and it's called Jetpack AI Assistant. And it's both for generation of text, but also for editing of text. Uh, it's available for free. So if you go to wordpress.com for limited time only, uh, you can get uh, something like 20 free requests and you pay a monthly $10 fee after that. Um, it can summarize a blog post in a headline, adjust the tone of text, generate an entire post from a single prompt, correct spelling grammar, it can do all kinds of stuff, mostly you know the stuff that you would associate with uh, your typical you know, chat GPT, GPT-4 style generative AI. But um, yeah, kind of cool to see it pop up on WordPress. Yeah, and another example of, as you said, kind of things just being built in as features to these existing products where, again, where other products that were like, let me help write a blog post for yeah. you. And uh, yeah, it's now just built in. And that's a tool. I think I'm personally a big fan of the idea of AI writing assistance. Uh, so not just generating blog posts, but making it you know, a less painful process to write things, write titles, you know, kind of iterate. And it's cool to see that it's now just built into WordPress, which is a huge, you know, server of websites. A ton of blogs and websites are built on top of it. Last story, we have Google's Bard AI can now write and execute code to answer a question. So that's the story that Bard's output can now include Python code that it wrote to answer a question. And this is, I guess, pretty logical. One of the big limitations of language models is things like answering quantitative questions or things that require kind of an algorithm of counting or things like that. So to make it actually work more reliably, writing code to execute it and actually get things right is kind of a cool approach. And it's interesting that Bard now does this while other things like ChatGPT, as far as I know, don't. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, one of the, they give a couple examples, but it kind of seems like when you ask it a, a question like, I don't know, how many weeks are there in a year or something? Instead of trying to summon the answer through its magical matrix of weights and whatnot, it just generates, for example, some code that's like, okay, there are 365 days in a year. I got to divide that by seven days in a week, and then that's your answer, something like that. Um, so the the thing I found really cool about this is it's kind of an extension of that strategy we've talked about. Uh, let's think about this step by step, right? So like we know language models work best when they're allowed to kind of think through or encouraged to think through their answer in an explicit step-by-step -step way, rather than just giving you the answer if they actually tell you their thought process. And that way they can, as they generate the next line, they can lean on the thought process they've written so far to make it more reliable. And this is almost like an extension of that. It's like, don't give me the answer, show me how to get to the answer in the form of code. And so it really forces the model to go through that logical exercise. So I actually would lump it as almost a prompt engineering exercise in that same category, just maybe a little bit more abstract. And moving on into our applications and business section, we have AI at work, what people are saying. This is a uh, basically a poll or report uh, by BCG, Boston Consulting Group. They're like one of the big consulting companies along with like KPMG and Deloitte and stuff like that. And they did this big survey of 13,000 people in 18 countries to kind of, you know, vibe out what people are thinking about generative AI. 
Um, they came up with a couple of headline results. Uh, regular users of generative AI are a lot more optimistic than non-users. They see the transformative potential uh, both to improve and threaten work. And that's maybe you know not super surprising if you're more optimistic about the technology. Maybe you're more likely to test it and vice versa. Um, and yeah, they're talking about like how 40% of people, uh, of managers of leaders have actually like gotten AI training specifically, which is kind of interesting. And um, yeah, balance of people talking about their views on AI regulation, 79% support AI regulation, um, though 71% believe the rewards of generative AI outweigh the risks. So just kind of an overview of fairly optimistic, I think, like especially compared to some of the polls that we've seen at other points uh, on the podcast, Andre. Yeah, exactly. I think there's some other interesting numbers here. So as you mentioned, leaders are more optimistic than frontline employees. 62% of leaders are optimistic. 42% uh, of employees are optimistic, which is still pretty good. Regular users of generative AI are much more optimistic. 62% are optimistic versus 36 uh, And 80% of leaders say that they use yeah. generative AI regularly, whereas only 20% of employees do right now. So yeah, it, I think these numbers track quite well. And it means that hopefully as more people start integrating AI into their workflow, start to understand generative AI and how to use it, and that it can necessarily just replace uh, a lot of job categories, uh, these numbers, I think, yeah, will will kind of maybe keep improving, so to speak. Yeah, I was surprised to see that twenty uh, percent of frontline people saying that they used these chatbots, whereas eighty percent of leaders say that they have. I will say, uh, I'm kind of suspicious of the leaders' number because what I've seen historically, especially in the kind of like um, the sorts of leaders that would float around the like consulting ecosystem, like not super like technically savvy like people who are more about being showy and consulting is all about selling your selling yourself and your skills um and not necessarily actually kind of quite being at the front of things uh in enterprise companies who are their their clients that could be a thing as well and people tend to like to present themselves as experts on generative ai and you know you could imagine that tilting them towards claiming that they use this stuff all the time uh, as kind of a, like a badge of of pride or whatever. I don't know if that's the case, but it's just kind of like a stray thought that might partly explain that big discrepancy between the 80 and the 20 there. Next story, doctors are using chatbots in an unexpected way from the New York Times. So this is a fairly lengthy article that covers this topic of doctors now using things like ChatGPT to create more pathetic and sort of emotionally validating or considerate uh, communications with patients. It's interesting to me, we discussed a paper maybe a month or two ago that found that, or I think it might've been a survey yeah. on Reddit where they, they found that you know this kind of thing, ChatGPT writing responses instead of doctors, actually led to better results in terms of you know, preference of communication. And this article goes into uh, some of these conversations in, in practice of some doctors actually adopting it, some examples of how they have done it, some examples of issues with how it would be used, some, you know, ChatGPT isn't perfect. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting article for me to see that this is actually becoming 
a thing people do and not just research what you discussed before. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, this is one of those applications that I, I just I really love and I'm optimistic about. Partly because you know the thing that really makes doctors suffer, or one of the many things, is like having to interact with patients and and the energy drain associated with that, and then having to be empathetic. That's a, a huge load, a huge burden to shoulder. And if you can help them take that burden away, you know, make them effectively more patient uh, with their with their patients. Like that's a really, really big thing, and they can redirect that attention to the analytical tasks that that you know they're best at. I think one of the failure modes that you might worry about too is as you diminish the direct interaction from the doctor to the patient, you know maybe there's a risk that the doctor ends up picking up on fewer subtle cues that the patient might express, right? So if you know there might be a little indication that you know the patient's veering into depression or maybe a little pain here or there that they reference that ends up being a clue that tips you off to something important. Um, but still, overall, this seems like a really good kind of direction to push in. And, um, and one where you know hallucinations are maybe less of a problem, because this problem resembles summarization more than it does maybe generation out of whole cloth, um, because there's you know, often kind of a key message that the doctor wants to convey. And if you can repackage that in a more empathetic form, then you know, you're doing more, maybe more summarizing. And, uh, and so that, you know, Good use case. We know that these kinds of models are, are great for that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and there's some interesting other details here. For instance, it mentioned how using ChatGPT can make com communication more understandable. So instead of using fancy language that is hard to understand or you know complicated explanations, mm -hmm. you can use AI to kind of make things easier to understand. So you can definitely criticize this as you know automating away the human interaction. The doctor is not necessarily caring and just getting the AI to be considerate. But given how much load there is on doctors and, you know, just it probably not being feasible to spend an hour to write a letter that is, you know, considerate and um, emotionally empathetic, you know, I think it, it makes sense and it is a positive thing for doctors to integrate it into their workflow in a, you know, mindful way that isn't just sort of poorly considered. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, we've got in our lightning round, bankers shopping FTX's hundreds of millions of dollars stake in AI startup. And oh boy, this is inside baseball for the AI safety community. Um, FTX, the now disgraced collapsed crypto exchange um, that was once headed up by Sam Bankman-Fried, or as some people like to call him, scam bank run fraud. Um, <laughs> so he, uh, that, that was me. That was not uh, some kind of Texas speech thing. It's just my Trump. I'm proud of it. Anyway, the point is, um, so FTX collapsed. Before they collapsed, they made a massive investment, $500 million into Anthropic, which is, is kind of like a, you could think of that as a, like a, one of the three top AI labs right now, Google, uh, DeepMind, OpenAI, and Anthropic, kind of maybe leading arguably the LLM charged at least today. And there was this big question when FTX collapsed, whoa, what happens to Anthropic and the 500 million they raised? And a lot of people were worrying, 
shit, did FTX give them that money in the form of FTT tokens? In other words, of their like own internal currency that is now worthless? And we now seem to have the answer. It turns out that the investment is still good. It was in dollars. But now, essentially, um, FTX is holding on to a bunch of anthropic stock, which they have to liquidate as part of their liquidation process. So that's kind of what's happening. People are just selling all this anthropic stock that FTX bought but that now has to be liquidated to, uh, well, as part of the kind of, I guess, bankruptcy procedure. I don't know if they're explicitly going to get bankruptcy at this point, but. Yeah, very interesting story, pretty dramatic. FTX, I think, did this investment maybe last year, definitely a while ago before ChatGPT went crazy. And Anthropic has its own chatbot, Claude, that is very good as well. So this 500 million of stock is <laughs> is probably maybe more valuable now, depending on how you sell it. It's kind of funny. Yeah, that actually that's a good point. <laughs> it might it might be a decent a decent investment. Yeah, that was a great investment by FTX, <laughs> but uh, you know, too bad they didn't live to see it. Mm-hmm. And now OpenAI chief executive does not plan to take the company public. Uh, that's pretty much the story. Sam Altman said that there's no interest in going from private uh, to public where you know the general public could invest and have some say in how it goes. And the idea here is that it most inventors, most investors may not kind of agree with OpenAI strategy for developing super intelligence. So I guess the idea is less pressure from investors to kind of guide the ship. Yeah, OpenAI has a long history of being really skeptical of their cap table, or not skeptical, but kind of concerned about their cap table and who can influence them. Um, That was reflected in the details of their deal with Microsoft, which has Microsoft owning 49% of OpenAI. It's still OpenAI has that operational independence. Um, yeah, they're, they're capped for profit structure. There's a bunch of stuff in the background. Basically, OpenAI uh, really looking at their their long-term mission of making you know superhuman general AI. And like if that's your mission, then you care about getting that right. Because if you get it wrong, a lot of people uh, die or something really bad could happen. And so, yeah, the theory here is we want to have full executive control or all the control we can um, to make sure that you know, we don't have short-term investor sentiment pushing us to do something irresponsible. At least that's the theory. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Next, we have the $500 million robot pizza startup you never heard of has shut down, report says. Is that headline, the way it's written, it kind of makes me feel like you can just go back to not knowing anything about this story. But anyway, uh, Zoom, or Zume, I, I'm not sure. Uh, a robot pizza delivery startup that raised almost $500 million shut down uh, due to technological difficulties. And this is like, oh man, I, I invested, uh, my brother and I actually invested in this like startup that was in roughly the same space that just worked so hard. And sadly, because of the environment, they collapsed too. This is like a common thread these days. But food tech is super, super hard. And uh, part of it is like, Okay, so here they struggled with problems such as stopping melted cheese from sliding off its pizzas while they cooked in moving trucks, leading to high-profile departures uh, and financial problems. So, yeah, I mean, this is a very, very tricky thing to do. Cleaning also turns out to be like a weirdly difficult thing to do in food tech, like getting things scrubbed clean enough that they pass inspections and things like that. Um, So, yeah, moment of silence for, for Zoom. 
Yeah, and uh, you may not, you know, need to know about it, but 500 million is a lot, and this is a bit of a category, so it doesn't bode well for this kind of general kind of uh, business. Hey, it's an anthropic investment. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have Adobe opens up its Firefly generative AI model to businesses, so Adobe has launched Firefly for Enterprise, which allows every employee within a company to generate images or copy from text-based descriptions. Uh, This is kind of cool. Actually, we were looking at MidJourney, and there's no way to get sort of a license for the company. Everyone has to do their own individual account. So it makes a lot of sense to me, and I think companies would want to be able to kind of just buy for their whole like company or set of employees to be able to use it. Yeah, it's, um, I guess, one of the themes that we've seen crop up recently in, a, in generative AI is the dichotomy between like companies that go after like direct-to-consumer, uh, like B2C, and companies that do enterprise-level sales. You can think here of OpenAI that courts individuals mostly versus Cohere that does the same thing, roughly, language modeling, uh, foundation models, but for the enterprise. And this seems like, again, that kind of, you know, you got mid-journey versus in this case, Adobe testing out the the enterprise version, and yeah, I mean, kind of cool. Curious to see which which play wins, or at least what the relative market sizes end up being. Next, we have Google Cloud and Salesforce team up to bolster AI offerings, and so this is a strategic partnership um, between Google Cloud and Salesforce. And we've actually seen Salesforce collaborate with like an increasing number of sort of like third third party vendors is roughly the right term, I guess. I think they also like partnered up with Cohere recently too. So we're just seeing them dip their dip their fingers in a lot of pies. And um, yeah, Google Cloud is the latest pie. Boy, this feels like a little bit of a disgusting metaphor. But um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of products and services that are included under this agreement. Um, there's Google's big query tooling and Salesforce's cloud uh, data cloud and Vertex AI. Um, which is Google's fully managed AI platform, basically, or like like one-stop shop. Um, yeah, what would you think of this, Andre? Yeah, it's showing Google still making all of these deals. As we mentioned, Salesforce also trying to you know move fast with AI, which makes a lot of sense. They've been doing things like Einstein GPT. They've had Slack GPT things like that. So this is, I guess, another way for them to accelerate the ability to deliver things like that. Last story, a new important generative AI startup has come out of stealth. So this is about contextual AI, a new startup backed by a whole bunch of investors. So it's actually similar to what we just mentioned, where they want to build large language models for enterprise for businesses instead of ChatGPT for regular users. That is a good way to rake in money uh, for sure. Don't know how important this will turn out to be. I don't know that they've launched anything, contextual AI, but another player in the uh, LLM game, I guess. Yeah, I, I totally agree with your like kind of uncertainty about how that pans out. You know, I... <laughs> I don't know. I've said this on previous episodes. I'm very open to being proved, proved wrong here, but I am super skeptical given the economics of scaling, whether these plays like, you know, like Cohere uh, or or like uh, Contextual end up working out. Because like ultimately, 
you need a massive source of like of compute. You can't compete at this level with just raising a couple hundred million dollars. And you look at like OpenAI with their deep, deep partnership with Microsoft and their access to gigantic amounts of processing power. You look at DeepMind, which is now integrated into Google, so same thing. Like you're competing with that. And in a context where compute is such a like an absolutely critical resource for scaling, it's just like, I don't know, like best of luck to them. And it is absolutely like it's up to them to, to kind of prove me wrong here. Um, and God knows I've been proved wrong before, but I, at the moment, I would be surprised if, you know, the, the, these sorts of companies end up, um, end up lasting, but we'll see. Yeah, I will say this, uh, one of the co-founders was the head of research at Hugging Face and also research scientist at the Facebook AI Research Fair. And uh, there's also the other co-founder worked at Hugging Face and Meta AI Research. So definitely, yeah, the founders, I think, are pretty legit. And I could see that being a big component. All right, so kicking off our project and open source section now, we have Red Pajama 7 billion, now available, comma, instruct, I don't know why I said the comma. Let's do that again. Red Pajama 7 billion, now available, instruct model outperforms all open 7 billion models on Helm benchmarks. Okay, this is, it actually took me two reads to kind of piece together fully what the significance of this was, but basically this is a series of models that are now being open sourced um, they're called Red Pajama, and they're all this sort of like 7 billion. So there's this base model, the, the pre-trained model, just basically a glorified text autocomplete system. You can think of it as like your raw GPT-4 or whatever. And then there are fine-tuned versions of it being released as well, um, instruction fine-tuning and chat fine-tuning. And um, the, the take-home here is that the, these models perform really well on the Helm benchmark. So Helm stands for Holistic Evaluation of Langu Language Models. And I'm embarrassed to say I knew like nothing about this when uh, I first ran into it. But basically, this is a bunch of different measures all aggregated together, measures of accuracy, of calibration, fairness, and efficiency. And basically, you look at how these language models perform across a bunch of different tasks, and you sort of average them together and compare them to each other. Um, I think one of the big headlines here is that the uh, the base model outperforms all the other open source 7 billion parameter models that are out there, including Llama, which we've talked about a lot and that was a, a really big breakthrough when it came out, and Falcon, which has been the kind of latest big splashy launch. So uh, open source kind of one-upping itself over and over again. Yeah, actually, it's surprising that they are better. Falcon was very solid and seemed to be quite a bit ahead. So it's hard to say whether, let's say, on other benchmarks or in practice, this will be superior, yeah. but definitely pretty exciting to have even more new models. And this one also has this instruct version for chatbot type stuff. They have some pretty impressive examples. So yeah, it's yet another open source language model to keep up, keep up with. As you mentioned, there's already Falcon. Uh, there's Guanaco, which is a chatbot tuned thing. Vicuna, Vicuna. Vicuna. Yeah. Thank you, Etsode. Yeah, and, and a lot of these. So it's still, you know, lots of stuff coming out with LLMs and open source efforts, which is impressive. Yeah. And, and I think that there's like kind of two 
um, threads that at least, you know, every time I see something where I'm like, ah, that feels like a bit of a trend, uh, I think it, it's kind of worth flagging. But there were two pieces that felt that way here. You know, one is we're starting to really see this focus on relative rankings of language models to one another. So fewer claims about just absolute performance, like, hey, here's how we did on this translation task, like we got this score. And instead, we're moving more and more towards things like ELO rankings or relative, like, you know, ranking, you know, here are 10 different models, this is the top one. And I think that reflects just the difficulty of evaluating these models on any one particular metric uh, and, and the, the difficulty of absolute evaluations. And yeah, the second piece is sort of tied to that. It's the idea that we're seeing more and more of these models being evaluated according to metrics that are secretly aggregates of other metrics. So instead of just testing these things on one task, you test them on 20, and then you kind of average together, you, you pool the performance and use that as your score. And that, that reflects the challenge of just measuring the performance of general purpose systems like this. Yeah, it's... I haven't seen too many of these numbers on Helm on the open... LLM leaderboard on Hugging Face, which we've referred to before, and Falcon is currently at the top. I don't see these models yet, so it'll be interesting mm. to me to see how they fare on this you know, public leaderboard. But uh, yeah, yet another cool open source release. Second story, Llama Index adds private data to large language models. So Former Uber research scientist Jerry Liu has launched this open source project that is designed to assist developers in leveraging LLMs on top of their personal or organizational data, allowing them to connect data from PDFs, PowerPoints, and other things to LLMs. And this is also a startup. They raised $8.5 million dollars again, to build an enterprise version of this to you know, make it usable for businesses. Yeah, and uh, oh, wait, full disclosure, it, I believe that, no, I'm pretty sure I did participate in the seed round, um, but Llama Index is a really cool company. Uh, one of their co-founders also worked with my brother Ed on an AI safety project. So hey, lots of, uh, lots of tie-ins here, but it is, it is really cool. It's, the idea is essentially you can like, take in PDFs and PowerPoints and just like kind of random documents that you have lying around and ingest them efficiently um, into your kind of LLM setup. So helps you with your pipelining, makes things more efficient in that sense. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of biased. So yay, LAM Index. Hi, Simon. <laughs> yeah, seems cool. And again, seeing all these former research scientists starting companies is really, I guess... An interesting trend, in a way, of, of academia being the seed for all of this enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the people working at these big companies, too. Like, that seems to be the meme, right? Like, you graduate from, from academia, you go work at Uber or at Facebook or whatever, or Google, and then, you, and then you say, hey, I want to make my own LLM company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next, moving on to our big section, research and advancements. First story was kind of a big story of last week. This is from nature.com. Faster sorting algorithms discovered using deep reinforcement learning. So DeepMind had this kind of big round of press around AlphaDev that managed to figure out how to optimize sorting. Very, you know, important uh 
algorithm for all all software to just take a list and make it sorted. And they were able to speed up sorting of small uh, lists of up to five elements, I think, by something like 70% by optimizing the low-level code. And yeah, I guess the big news here is that they actually managed to optimize the implementation with just pure AI. Now, I've looked into some discussions of this, and this is not necessarily actually a big deal. It's, you know, this kind of optimization on the low level is not super novel and maybe it's just this particular implementation that compared to was a speed up. But yeah, it seems like from discussions on Hacker News and so on, the notion of this speeding up this super important algorithm is a bit overblown, but the result itself is still really cool. Yeah, I will say Hacker News is like notorious for being very like, well, I basically did this last week. I just did it with blah, 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 blah. Not, not that it's like not, you know, not chock full of really competent people, but they do tend to be a little bit pessimistic. Um, it, it definitely does seem uh, like a, an interesting, if nothing else, it's like an interesting use of effectively the alpha zero algorithm, the same algorithm that um, in a sense, roughly speaking, a similar algorithm to the one that uh, famously won that Go game like back in 2015 or whatever, this is like deep reinforcement learning based strategy. And what they did was they kind of like frame the problem of sorting or more appropriately, they frame the problem of coming up with a sorting algorithm as a game. And they kind of go, okay, um, let's look at the cons- like kind of computer assembly language, the assembly instructions and like really like hardcore, like computer readable code almost. And like, can we create a, like you can think of a, a move in this game as writing a new assembly language instruction and adding it to your uh, algorithm. And eventually as you add all these instructions together, they do form a complete sorting al- algorithm, hopefully. And you train the process that builds that algorithm uh, to get a reward that is essentially like the the correctness reward associated with a, a successful sort. And yeah, like they, they basically show, I don't know, to me, this was like another example of model-based reinforcement learning that can kind of do like just about anything. I mean, it, it sort of seems like now it's just a matter of taking this giant gun and pointing it at specific problems. And that is consistent with DeepMind's approach. They, you know, instead of, of doing general purpose chatbots, that sort of thing like OpenAI, they seem to be more focused on like these foundational kind of great problems of biology and chemistry and here computer science and and trying to make headway using maybe arguably more narrow systems, but with strategies that would generalize like deep reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, this is a pretty general approach. So you do need to retrain the model and rerun alpha dev for every kind of algorithm you want to optimize. But to me, it looks like you should be able to just run the same approach given another piece of code or algorithm to optimize. So yeah, I think it's it's definitely cool to see this working as with prior DeepMind results, for instance, optimizing energy usage or optimizing chip layout. It's another very practical development that can be integrated into a lot of you know optimization of software. 
Yeah, it also kind of closes a, a cool productivity loop where you know this is going to accelerate further AI development, especially by dropping compute costs. And if you can sort things more quickly, then you know that's an operation that shows up like everywhere in every workflow. And you know these sorts of things compound, so they make it five percent more efficient, and another five percent comes in, and you know pretty soon these things uh, these things add up. So yeah, really cool uh, cool development. And second main story, control video adding conditional control for one-shot text-to-video editing. So this is an approach for text-driven video editing that makes it basically better a better result when you want to, let's say, modify the style of a video to have you know, a painterly or some other sort of visual effect. And they show how with some novel ideas, they can make it more consistent for your editing result. So I think video is still one of these frontiers where we are not so successful yet with generation and also editing. And so to me, seeing more successful and more powerful models, here we have a lot of examples on the website and it's pretty well yeah it's good you can see the video and the results and it's kind of impressive so i think again uh, a lot of practical applications for this yeah and i think it's it's an interesting example of the push towards like more grounded models too so in other words models that aren't just you know one modality like uh, text generation or video or whatever but that kind of mix the two and the fact that you're able to do you know one shot text to video editing basically like you you ask this thing to make a tweak to an image it has to understand the logical relationships between objects in that image which historically has been a bit of a challenge especially like in image generation and image recognition models and so yeah pushing that frontier into video like you said andre i mean, i think that is the current frontier image generation seems to have been defeated like maybe a couple of months ago like the uh, we're now just beating the dead horse and like adding you know 4k is turning into 8k or whatever but uh, certainly for for video this seems to be an interesting step i will flag it was um tsinghua university project so uh you know if you're interested in geopolitics of this stuff that is i believe that's a uh, people's liberation army affiliated institution in china certainly there's a lot of like crossover there so uh, sort of like interesting geopolitical implications. Mm -hmm. And as always, we'll have links to all these things we discuss in the description and also on last week in AI. So if you want to see these videos and what we're talking about, just go there and click on the link for control video. All right, on to our lightning round, the curse of recursion. Training on generated data makes models forget. And yeah, basically, like that's what it, it is what it sounds like. AI models that are trained on generated synthetic data, essentially, um, can forget how to perform tasks when they're presented with real world data. And this is known as the curse of recursion. I didn't actually know that, that there was a name for this. Uh, essentially, the models become too dependent on patterns that are in the data that was generated. And, and essentially, like this kind of boils down to, or it's related to the idea that once you have a model that has learned enough to generate, it's only learned so much. And the stuff that it generates is in some sense like replicating the same patterns of information that it's already seen. So there's only so much in that well that you can tap. Um, but uh, yeah, what did you think of this, Andre? 
Yeah, I think it's another interesting insight into training LLMs and other models. Uh, there's been a pretty decent amount of work that you mentioned that does use uh, generated outputs from something like GPT-4 to train smaller models. And I think and as a paradigm, enriching a training data set with a model-generated data is not too uncommon. So this is, in some sense, might be a pretty important finding going forward. Next, instruct zero efficient instruction optimization for black box language models. We've already discussed a few works on this idea of modifying your prompt to be better, to achieve what you want better. And as this says, this one is cool because you can optimize your instruction even if you don't have access to the model itself and instead just use something like GP4 via their API. So very practical for use cases as well. Yeah, and another case as well where we're seeing these proprietary models, very powerful models like GPT-4, being used to kind of bootstrap less powerful strategies. And so uh, essentially creating way more leverage, way more value in the ecosystem than you, than you might expect. This is like yet another way of using GPT-4, like using a little bit of access to GPT-4 to get a lot of value from, uh, from other systems. So kind of cool that it's, uh, it's keeping the whole system afloat. Yeah, and I guess... Implementation-wise, this is kind of interesting. They use an open source language model to convert this soft prompt into an instruction that's submitted into this black box language models for evaluation. And then that performance is sent to Bayesian optimization to produce new prompts in a loop. So also another example of combining multiple language models to get the best results, which has been a pretty right. notable trend. And then we have simple and controllable music generation. It's a rare break from the really long titles that we've seen before. Um, just sort of what it says. I mean, this is a, uh, a new research from the University of Amsterdam uh, that led to a new AI system that can generate simple and controllable music. So it's called GAN Synth, and it's uh, it's a GAN, so a generative adversarial network, basically like one one part of the network generates a new kind of output, a new song, and then the other part of the network uh, basically tries to figure out whether it is a, a, a legitimate song or not. And over time, those two networks kind of bounce off each other until they land in a in a kind of very optimized zone where the generator can actually do a really good job of um, of producing quality music. And so, kind of cool. I mean, I feel like we see less GAN stuff these days as you know, transformers seem to be the the kind of convergent choice for everybody. So it's kind of cool to see a little bit of uh, a little bit of diversity in the in the mix. Yeah, and I think another thing we'll mention that's very relevant is also this week it was announced that Meta has open sourced Music Gen, this new model that uses an LLM to produce uh, very impressive audio samples. Uh, from Music Lab. So uh, that's also been a bit of a frontier for AI, generating realistic and, and kind of good music. And we are seeing progress there too. Next, can large language models infer causation from correlation? So it's kind of a, a question on the intelligence of language models to see how well they can reason about causation. 
And the study basically found that LMs are not great at inferring causation. They're much better at correlations, which kind of makes sense. So that's another indicator of really what sort of reasonings LLM are good at. Yeah, and maybe not super, super surprising in the sense that you know, language models, a lot of some people call them stochastic parrots. Basically, they're just this idea that they're just learning statistical correlations. There's that word in a data set to predict like the next word to do their autocomplete task they're usually trained on. And, you know, you might guess from that training that, yeah, they're correlation detectors. They're not causation detectors. Uh, they're just learning patterns between different words. And the question is whether as you potentially as you scale these systems up, do they then pick up the ability to infer causation? And I think that's kind of like one of the underlying questions in this, this paper. Uh, they do have this like massive data set that they create with like 400,000 examples of sort of like, like um, kind of maps, uh, uh, what do you call them? Graphs, graphs, like logical graphs. Um, so of, of the causal graphs of the kind of connections between different um, events and, and, and things, entities. And they feed a bunch of different causal graphs. So it's like, okay, imagine that uh, A causes B and B causes C. Then like, you know, what does, does A cause C? You know, that sort of thing. And they see how well language models can, uh, can predict the, the causal relationships there. Uh, one thing that was interesting, you know, a lot of these models, they, they do worse than random. But the few models that actually did uh, perform best exceeded random guessing somewhat, and they're all the most scaled models. And I think that this actually hints that, in fact, even causal reasoning may, may be overcome through scale. It's possible that just as you scale these systems up more, you, you know, through all these objections, scale will, will win through nonetheless, and we'll have these systems that, yes, they're just learning autocomplete, but that forces them to learn causal relationships between entities. Um, anyway, it was really interesting to see. They also did some fine-tuning experiments, like what if we take these raw models and train them specifically to do this task? Like, then do they pick up the skill? And the answer is yes, they pick it up really well. And again, uh, within model families, you see that scaling leads to better performance on this task as well. So, you know, I think one kind of maybe underrated. Uh, conclusion or, or indication from this paper is sure these models aren't great now, but the scaling train uh, may already be leaving the station, and that we're already seeing the most scaled models do the best here. And, uh, and certainly with fine tuning, that's that's also true. All right, next up we have inference time intervention, eliciting truthful answers from a language model. And so this has been a concern for a lot of people. Is like you've got a language model, um, sometimes it will spit out lies. So if you, or, or just falsehoods, if you ask GPT-3, for example, who really caused 9-11, it'll, it'll potentially tell you that the US government caused 9-11 because you wrote who really caused 9-11. You're hinting that the answer you expect is something kind of in the conspiratorial camp. And so the question is, does the model, even if it gives you the wrong answer, does it actually know the true answer deep down inside? And this is a detailed paper. Um, I wish we had more time to get into it, but I'll just park the thought by saying that they found that there does seem to be there do seem to be layers in the transformer architecture that they looked at that um, actually are most sensitive to the truth 
of a statement, the actual truth of a statement. And the weird thing is they're not the deepest layers and they're not the shallowest. They're somewhere in between. And what you do is you basically build a probe. You, you train a small linear model on top of that layer of the network. So the activations of that layer, you use them to anyway, directly predict the truth value of a statement. And you'll find that using that layer alone and then directly mapping that to a, a conclusion, you'll get surprisingly accurate results, results that are more accurate than the raw output of the whole system. Yeah, I am pretty impressed by this research. It's pretty insightful to use these activations in this way, kind of a surprising result. It's uh, open sourced as Honest Llama. So <laughs> an important problem, as you've mentioned, of hallucination, and this appears to be a pretty good uh, breakthrough on that. It is in a breakthrough in our understanding as well of like interpretability to some degree. You know, don't want to overhype it. It's not a panacea. This doesn't solve all the problems. But um, anyway, lots to say about this one and maybe just check out the paper. I think it's super, super cool. Yeah, it's it's a bit technical. So maybe, you know, you do need some background, but very cool. And I, one last thought here is they do build on top of Llama. So that's yet another example where mm -hmm. having it be open sourced with the weights being open if nothing else for academia, that's a huge benefit. And we are making some pretty important progress because of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Actually, sorry, just one last thing. I'm, I'm looking at one of the figures right now and it's it's kind of almost too interesting not to, not to share briefly. Um, so th they did look at the effectiveness of, of this technique. At, or well, anyway, they have a technique that's tied to what we've just discussed. It's, it is a bit technical, um, but they found that using their technique certain kinds of falsehoods can get weeded out of the system more easily than others. So they found that like, for example, stereotypes or uh, belief in the paranormal or things related to misinformation can be weeded out really effectively. Whereas other things like uh, they have nutrition, economics, cons and conspiracy theories turn out to be still kind of troublesome in this uh, in this setup. So it's kind of interesting to see that like the model seems to understand truthfulness as a concept for some fields, but then for other fields, it seems to be maybe a little less good at internally recognizing the truth value of these statements. Next, scaling audiovisual learning without labels. So researchers from MIT and IBM have developed a new technique for learning representations for audio and visual data. This is a self-supervised contrastive type approach. You don't have to get into the technical details, but basically they align from data, kind of find similar representations. So you can have a model that uses this pre-trained representation model um, to help it be better really at understanding language, or sorry, here, audio-visual data. Not seemingly, I guess, too novel in terms of approach as far as I see, but again, it's in this whole trend of having a multimodal type models and modality-specific encoders, which is very typical. Yeah, also kind of cool to see IBM research jumping into the, the fray here. I think they might have had you know an entry or two in the generative AI race earlier, but Kind of cool that they're, you know, they're plugging away. Next up, we have tree ring watermarks, fingerprints for diffusion images that are visible 
and sorry, invisible, invisible, that's the whole point, and robust. Um, so basically, this is a way that you can embed invisible and, and robust watermarks, in other words, watermarks that actually like that work robustly um, into diffusion images uh, using AI. So the watermarks are unique to each image. Uh, so you can ver verify like the authenticity of an image and track where it's being used. Uh, or even if it's been altered or cropped. So that's kind of exciting. You know, you think about like all the concerns of over fake news and evidence fabrication and this and that. A lot of people have been pointing to the idea of the need for cryptographic uh, signatures on whether it's images, video, audio, or whatever, because otherwise like you just, like you can't prove what's true if everything can be generated. So uh, this reflects a, a pretty cool, a pretty cool new advance in that area. Exactly. Uh, also open sourced. And yeah, I think similar to the hallucination paper, very, very practical and useful. Uh, we've talked about concerns about you know, deep fakes and, and knowing whether images are true or not. And this sort of watermarking is, I think, generally agreed upon to be a good idea for companies to support. So it's cool to see now an approach that is very robust. Next, shining a light on neuromorphic computing. Engineers at the University of Pittsburgh are exploring optical MEM wristers to develop neuromorphic computing. Neuromorphic computing is computing that is inspired by the brain. So instead of a typical kind of CPU architecture with memory using transistors, this is a very different way to build a computer that mimics how our brains work. And it's neuromorphic computing as a research subject has been around for a while. The idea is that it can lead to more efficient and high performance models. And this is a review article that just presents an overview of recent progress, specifically when it concerns uh, photonic integrated circuits. Yeah, so that combination of like two kind of hot areas, the photonics and the neuromorphic computing. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious where this ends up going. I wish I knew more about neuromorphic computing. This is definitely one of those like things on my to-do list at some point when I get the time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wonder like how that ends up potentially competing with uh, more classical machine learning approaches. Um, yeah, kind of cool. And um, I think that's that's all that's all I know about this space. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll see. We will need novel hardware probably for AI in the long term, and this is one of the candidates yeah. for that. All right, next up we have Orca, progressive learning from complex explanation traces of GPT-4. So this is a new AI model um, that can learn from GPT-4's explanations of its reasoning, its explanation traces. And Orca is meant to, well, help in part with interpretability and explainability, right? Because if you can actually like you work with the explanations that a model gives you for its own internal reasoning, then you can understand better how it's working. And hopefully that ends up being useful for things like safety. Um, so for highly advanced language models, more and more important because it becomes less and less or more and more inscrutable, let's say, as it gets more scaled and complex. Um, and this model can also learn from human feedback. So, um, and and anyway, ex explain its predictions and, and do all kinds of stuff. It's really part of the gearing up toward making systems more understandable, partly because that is now a real bottleneck. It's a, increasingly even a regulatory bottleneck as people start to insist on explanations from these sorts of models. 
Yeah, for sure. And this is also built on top of Llama. So yet another example <laughs> yeah. of that. Uh, I like the trend of just <laughs> naming things after animals. I guess that's what we are all doing now. Uh, in the paper, they have a little emoji of an orca in the title, which I think is is pretty delightful so maybe the first paper with an emoji in the title oh no there's been there's been multiple oh, yeah, wait. trust me oh yeah Shit. so i'm not reading the same fun uh, fun papers you are yeah ai as a field has some fun paper titles as uh <laughs> maybe we've covered a few of those now Next, from pixels to UI actions, learning to follow instructions via graphical user interface. Uh, that's pretty much the idea is you can give an AI system some instructions with a GUI, and then the system uses computer vision to interpret the GUI and some NLP to understand the instructions. And yeah, you know, potentially instead of needing to have software integrated with plugins and whatnot, you know, in theory, you can have an AI do whatever you can do with your laptop. Yep, I, it feels like it falls into that bucket of I don't know, Adept AI is like doing something vaguely similar with their Act One um, model, and I guess their Act model series, where it's just like you ask for a thing, and then the AI just kind of does that action. And uh, this is a, another level of abstraction through GUIs of communicating with these systems. Um, so kind of, uh, yeah, kind of cool. I mean, this is more and more general, like requiring less and less like human expertise. And so widening in some sense, the range of stakeholders who can use these systems. Yeah, the examples uh, they have are not too complicated, like using a calculator or selecting something from a drop-down menu. So this is very much a limited research work. But you know, you could imagine in the future, ChatGPT, you just tell it, you know, do this on my laptop, and it will use your browser same as you do to do whatever you need to do. Then we have mind to web towards a generalist agent for the web. Now this is very much like that adept AI act one thing. So this is research out of the University of California, uh, sorry, UC Berkeley, um, and uh, essentially an agent that they call mind to web that can kind of go around and interact with the internet like a human user. And it also comes with a data set uh, that is meant for evaluating these kinds of agents in the future. Uh, to perform complex tasks on any website, um, and so that's that's pretty intense. And they they just flag that the current state of the art, you know, data sets for this sort of thing, they either use simulated websites or they only look at a limited set of websites and tasks that are not kind of suitable for this more general purpose thing. So they look at more than two thousand open ended tasks from one hundred and thirty seven different websites, um, thirty one different domains, and anyway, crowdsource action sequences for all these tasks, and they evaluate them and they build and evaluate this uh, this agent, it um, yeah really starts to feel like we're getting to the point where the interface that we use to deal with the world is no longer going to be clicking on stuff, no longer necessarily even, you know, even typing things ultimately if you do this verbally, but instead you're just talking to the language model that like does the action on the internet and 
yeah, that's a that's a pretty big shift. It's a pretty big cybersecurity shift, among other things. But it's just a, a wild, wild capability. And all of a sudden, the need for technical knowledge, it's not that it becomes lower, but like certainly a lot more people can use these sophisticated systems. Exactly. And unlike the previous paper we just covered about the GUI, to be clear, this is different because it's for the web specifically. So it looks at the HTML of a yeah. web page to know what to do. Some examples are like finding flights, booking uh, round trip uh, things from Mumbai to London, uh, doing browsing comedy films, streaming on Netflix that were released from 1992 to 2007, things like that. So yeah, another very practical thing that I'm sure we'll uh, be able to use uh, not too far from now. And now on to policy and safety, and I guess economy. This is where we talk jobs usually. So the first story is ChatGPT took their jobs. Now they walk dogs and fix air conditioners. And this is Kind of an overview sort of story from the Washington Post. Not exactly any news, but talking about this whole topic of people losing their jobs because of AI. And there's a few examples here of specific people that have been impacted and, and how they have had to adopt. For instance, there is Olivia Lipkin, a 25-year-old copywriter who, <laughs> yeah, just didn't have work because of ChatGPT being cheaper, even if it's not quite as good. And yeah, now these kinds of workers have to turn to other kind of work because it's hard to be a copywriter now and, and find a job as a, co a copywriter. Yep. And they're also flagging how the White House is paying attention to this. Not surprising. They had a quote um, from the White House in a December report where they said, AI has the potential to automate quotes, non-routine tasks, exposing large new swaths of the workforce to potential disruption. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm always intrigued by like the, the reaction to this sort of thing that, that people have. I mean, I certainly have one. Um, they quote somebody saying, it's too early to gauge how disruptive the stuff will be and claiming that uh, jobs like copywriting and translation and transcription and paralegal work are especially at risk um, but as he puts it, high-level legal analysis, creative writing or art may not be as easily replaceable. And I would just like maybe caution against thinking like this necessarily, because it, it does seem like when you automate like one kind of work uh, with these systems somewhat well, like the full the wholesale automation of that is like it's not like you have 10 more years or 100 more years. It's often the case that like the thing looks like a toy in your domain. So like, oh, it can only do some basic paralegal stuff. And then like, you know, six months later, just with more scale or a little bit more optimization or a better objective or better data set, like, you know, there's something blows humans out of the water at performing the full task. So not to be a, a, a doomsayer on that in that respect, but I think it's kind of worth like not being anchored in today's systems limitations, and instead thinking more about the trends. And the next story is actually very relevant to this. These are the American workers most worried that AI will soon make their jobs obsolete. So another survey conducted by CNBC and SurveyMonkey. Uh, and it says that a quarter of workers are worried AI will make their jobs obsolete. 
and half of workers in advertising and marketing and business support are worried about that, that strikes the average, as we mentioned. So it generally varies a lot by sector. And we've seen that you know today and in previous discussions as well, that AI will have different impacts and people perceive AI differently depending on what they do. Yeah, it's also you know more uh, kind of more polling, like we saw with the the BCG, the Boston Consulting Group uh, poll that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, they they get into like which groups are most concerned and and so on. And one of the things that they find is that concern diminishes with age. So like younger people, like eighteen to twenty four, thirty two percent say that they're worried, and that number drops to fourteen percent of workers 65 and older. Like, I don't know if that reflects the fact that, you know, when you're 65 or older, maybe you're closer to retirement. So you feel like you have less equity in the, in the game. Um, but it may also suggest that people who are younger and therefore one would imagine more likely to be working with and aware of these systems uh, might be better calibrated to, to the risks that, uh, that industries are facing. I mean, it really, it seems like there's a, a significant tidal wave hitting things and you, know, you might expect them to be uh, on track or to be rather tracking it more, more closely. Um, but there's also an interesting correlation in uh, kind of income. So 30% of people making less than 50K are worried. And then you've got 16% uh, making over 150K, which I actually think is like potentially backwards, funnily enough. Like, you know, if, if you're making a lot of money, you're probably in a white collar job and you're probably a greater risk of automation than somebody who's, you know, a contractor or a plumber. And so depending on the, 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 depending on the particulars, uh, I think that's kind of an interesting axis to look at is the relative disparity in uh, in concern. Yeah, I had that thought as well. And some other numbers I found interesting is 43% of workers say they expect their job to change significantly in the next five years, which makes sense. 43 is maybe a pretty reasonable number of where AI will have a large impact. And the survey did also find that discussion of AI within the workplace is mostly in the tech sector, with only 14% outside of tech saying it's been discussed a lot in their workplace. And now onto the lightning round, we have AI poses new threats to newsrooms and they're taking action. And uh, that second bit is, I think, most of the story here. We know, of course, about the the threats that AI poses to newsrooms. You know, we've got copywriting, and we've got um, even digi digitized uh, anchors and things like that coming out of different different companies. But one of the things that this focuses on is the fact that there you've got the New York Times and NBC News that are among some organizations that are holding preliminary talks with other media companies and large tech platforms. Um, and there's this digital news trade organization called Digital Context, Content Next that represents over 50 of the largest media organizations in the US, like WAPO and, uh, and so on. And they put out some principles for the development and governance of AI implicitly in media. And uh, what they, a couple of these principles that I thought were interesting, you know, developers and deployers of, of generative AI have to respect creators' rights to their content. Uh, publishers are entitled to negotiate for and receive fair compensation for the use of their IP. So in other words, implicitly, don't go training your models on our copy, on our articles or whatever. Uh, you know, we ought to have a right to negotiate 
uh, for compensation as you're training your models on those things. So you know, the cost of data access, if this sort of thing does become the norm, could go up quite a bit. You know, it kind of reminds me of some of the things we've seen where like Reddit and Stack Overflow are exploring, insisting on getting paid for scrapes of their websites. So uh, anyway, kind of an interesting watershed moment for media. For sure. And I guess that also makes me wonder, we've been discussing how things like ChatGPT are now relying on web APIs. And I could see it happening that new services will offer APIs to AI to be like, okay, right. can you check this article or read the news? And yeah, like AI companies have to pay to get access to these uh, new information that gets out because they don't have that built in. So interesting uh, to see this shaping up. Next, City of Yokosuka adopts ChatGPT after favorable trial results. Not too much to say here. The city has adopted ChatGPT in its administrative operations after a successful one-month trial. It's the first local government in Japan to do this. Uh, the officials used it to make bulletins, summarize meeting records, and edit documents. So nothing too crazy. And I suppose this is just showing what will probably be very typical throughout many governments and many local governments of trying out AI, integrating into uh, into a work process. Yeah, kind of kind of cool to see this uh, leadership at the the kind of municipal level. Um, yeah, we're gonna have probably a lot of a lot of little towns and maybe states experimenting with this sort of thing because you know you can get potentially a lot of efficiencies, and if you have less regulatory overhead, you know you're a smaller organization essentially. Um, you know you can get away with with quick lightweight tests of these things, and we might learn a lot about you know the value of these things in city planning or municipal things that I don't know the words for. So that'll be, uh, that'll be cool to watch. Next, we have AI-generated content should be labeled, EU Commissioner Jurova says. And essentially, this is, uh, well, it's kind of what it sounds like. The European Commission's uh, deputy head, so this is Vera Jurova, asked for companies that are using generative AI tools to label the content, label content that has the potential to generate disinformation. And I found a lot of these quotes kind of confusing to be honest like it was hard to follow what exactly they wanted to do with this and I'll, I'll just read a couple quotes that maybe we can try to unpack and decipher here um, but uh, so one of the quotes is signatories who integrate generative ai into their services like bing chat um, should build in necessary safeguards that these services cannot be used by malicious actors to generate disinformation. So, you know, maybe that makes some sense. You check the prompts to see if somebody might be trying to use your system for disinformation. Uh, but then, uh, then she says, signatories who have services with a potential to disseminate AI-generated disinformation should, in turn, put in place technology to recognize such content and clearly label this to users. So, I found that weird. Like. You're, if you're worried about uh, these systems being used to generate fake news, your solution is to have the text generation systems say that they're generating fake news. Um, a seems like you could just like cut that out. I mean, if you're in int intent on generating fake news, you're going to do it anyway. And B, if you already if you were opening AI and you could already tell that your system was generating fake news, then you could just prevent it from being generated in the first place. Um, so I, I might be missing something, but I was I was just kind of confused a little bit about the uh, 
the quotes and the framing there. I think it makes some sense in a sense of just informing the user that this has been AI modified or AI generated can change how they process it, right? So even if the model does fail, it's still useful to make it clear that there potentially is an issue and also try and if you're using a service, for instance, that is an AI model, on your end, you can also have an extra layer to try and detect things. So yeah, it makes some sense, I think. I uh, know. I think you're I, I was reading this through like a lens of malicious use. Like if you're mm-hmm. like if you're gonna use this to generate fake news intentionally, then you need to tell people that it's fake news or something like that. But I sorry, I think you're right. Your thing makes so much more sense. I <laughs> um, yeah, so basically like if you're Okay, recognizing the possibility. Oh my god, I feel so stupid now. Yes, recognizing the possibility that like if you're if you're going to use this AI to generate articles and you're like some news company, let people know that AI was used to generate the article because it could be hallucinating stuff. Okay, gotcha. That makes a hell of a lot more sense. Thank you, Andre, with the uh, with the slam dunk fact check. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the next story is very mm. relevant. OpenAI sued for libel after ChatGPT allegedly hallucinates man into embezzlement lawsuit. Uh, so yeah, that OpenAI uh, ChatGPT produced false information that, according to this lawsuit, caused damage to the man's reputation, and OpenAI acted negligently by publishing libelous material. So uh, kind of a funny case, but also pretty important because this could be setting the stage for these sorts of complicated lawsuits, specifically when it comes to libel for these kinds of things. Yeah, and and precedent so important, even in the U.S. system, sort of like less important in the states than in some other like Commonwealth countries like Canada. But precedent is still really really important there. Um, one thing that they had a, a, I guess a legal analyst, I think it was a lawyer, render some some opinion on this, and um, and, and his position was that in order to actually like win damages associated with uh, with this case to actually essentially win the case, the uh, the claimant would have to show that OpenAI acted with quotes knowledge of falsehood or reckless disregard of possibility of falsehood. Uh, which is anyway a sort of high level of proof that's associated with libel cases like this, and and this analysis was that like yeah yeah this might be a tricky one to show, so either OpenAI had to know uh, that they were actually generating falsehood in this particular instance, which that seems very much not to be the case, or uh, they acted with reckless disregard for the possibility of falsehood. I suspect that's going to be the case. You know what the case is going to rest on. Is there reckless disregard? You know, do you have a situation here where OpenAI is being reckless in generating outputs that are uh, that are libelous? And I don't. It's I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Think, yeah. Yeah. I think to give a bit more background here, this is a result of a journalist. Asking a journalist for an online gun website asks ChatGPT to su- summarize the case to the Second Amendment Foundation v. Robert Ferguson, and that's where it hallucinated the idea that this radio host, Mark Walters, was accused of embezzling money from the Second Amendment Foundation. And that was just total nonsense. So it is maybe questionable, right? If a journalist 
use this information uh, that is possibly on the journalist, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that, that's the thing, right? It, it makes it so difficult to figure out who owns what responsibility, and and that's like I think that you know fundamentally more than anything, that's the thing with generative AI, right? It diffuses responsibility. Our whole society is premised on the assumption that if there's text, if there's an image, if there's a piece of content out there, a human made it, and like when you take that away, you end up basically violating a bunch of these core assumptions baked into the legal system. And, and this is one of them. Like it's not, it's not super clear the extent to which you can act on reliance on the information that you get from these systems. Like how much should you be able to blame them for your screw up? Um, I don't, <laughs> again, I don't know. <laughs> and speaking of that, next story, <laughs> lawyers blame Chad GPT for tricking them into citing bogus Case law, you may think this is uh, the same story that you already covered, but I think it's a separate. Uh, here, two lawyers are facing possible punishment after filing a lawsuit against an airline that included references to past court cases that were invented by ChatGPT. The lawyers have apologized, uh, and yeah, it's it's. I think this already has happened once before. I'm pretty sure this is a separate thing. So. Kind of amusing. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the, uh, the not citing its sources or sometimes yeah fabricating. Uh, in this case, you know, case law or or just citations of things. We've seen this in a scientific context too before. I think we might have discussed one of those stories on the podcast previously. But like, yeah, you know, these the, the worst part is this thing will confidently cite sources, and so you can really feel like you're reading something authoritative. But um, but yeah, clearly not. So. I don't know. They're going to have to be professional standards for using these systems, for disclosing the use of these systems, and so on. Um, this obviously cannot continue like this. Uh, and the temptation is so high, right? Lawyer hours are billable at such a high rate. That's probably going to end up going down, uh, I think, with the use of these systems. That's my guess anyway. And we're going to see a lot of the the lawyerly work, the, work, the workmanlike work, say, um, automated away but in the meantime we absolutely need to like figure out what is what's the the level of responsibility that you have as a lawyer for these sorts of things what can your client sue you for what is malpractice what is what is criminal use of these systems what's what's reckless uh yeah uh, i don't know so many questions and like in another life maybe uh maybe i would go into like go into law to figure out what the hell to do but it's not like i have any ideas Indeed. Uh, I should self-correct. This is actually, this is still the same case we mentioned, I think, previously about a lawyer uh, mistaking this. It's just that this article goes into a bit more detail and does mention the second lawyer involved, Peter DeLuca, and how Peter DeLuca trusted this other lawyer and, and didn't double check. And now, that now their firm has put safeguards in place to make sure this doesn't happen. So I'm sure many, many legal entities are now making sure that this sort of press doesn't uh, happen for them. This is actually a really in- interesting failure mode of our process too. Cause like, so like we each, it's interesting. So we each read these articles. I think what happened here probably is like, so I read the first one and then Andre read the second one and we never like, we went like, "Hey, this is the same guy." Um, so kind of, uh, kind of funny. Yeah, you're right. Mm, yep. 
And next up, we have U.S. Congress to consider two new bills on artificial intelligence. So these are two, and I think this is really important, two bipartisan AI bills. Great to see uh, the, uh, the level of bipartisan agreement on AI legislation. We've seen this on a number of different levels. Uh, these have been introduced in the U.S. Senate. One of them is about transparency for government agencies that are actually using AI, so basically disclosing when they're using it and, and kind of how they should use it. And the other is about establishing an office of global competition analysis, basically just keep uh, the U.S. ahead of the game in AI development. Uh, the first one, I believe, was uh, to, to – I'm pretty sure it was um, uh, Senator Peters, I need to confirm that. Where did I put this here? Hang on one second. Peters, there it is. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, so Gary Peters, he's a, a Democrat who chairs the Homeland Security Committee, and uh, he's been really big on a lot of AI safety stuff. So there was like the Bipartisan Global Catastrophic Risk Mitigation Act that he kind of co-sponsored. So it's really cool to see him there. He's a really kind of technically informed senator. Um, and there are a bunch of uh, great Republican um, folks here as well, kind of teaming up on this stuff. So anyway, I, I find this really encouraging, the level of bipartisan uh, interest that this stuff is getting. Yeah. And, and you know, U.S. Congress actually doing this job. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to see that it can happen. Yeah. Moving on to synthetic media and art, our last section. First story is why nature will not allow the use of generative AI in images and videos. So nature is this really important journal for publishing research and science. And they just announced this policy of not publishing any content in which photography, videos, or illustrations have been created wholly or partly using generative AI. They cite a, a bunch of reasons about integrity, transparency, attribution, consent. Uh, yeah, I, it's kind of a, maybe a confusing or, or unclear policy because what does it mean to be partly generated uh, or created partly with generative AI? Yeah. What if you're just tweaking it with generative AI? But I guess in spirit, it might be clear enough that they don't want, you know, parts of images, uh, actually synthesized images in your uh, research. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I guess it applies in principle to text as well, or no, just generative AI and images and video. So, okay. Yeah. You know, kind of, kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I, I do wonder, like... Yeah, it's always hard to know. I do wonder if this is essentially delaying the inevitable. Like at some point, we're going to cross a threshold where these things are just so useful, even in illustrations, like in illustrating scientific concepts. We've seen that be you know, a really important facet of nature's approach to things. They have a lot of really nice illustrations for review articles and things like that. Um, so at a certain point, that becomes a real hindrance. And yeah, I, I, I wonder if that's going to be a lasting policy, but interesting to see different uh, organizations test out different things. Yeah. In the ending of article, they do explicitly say many national regulatory and legal systems are still formulating their response to the rise of generative AI until they catch up. As a publisher of research and creative works, nature stands will remain a no for inclusion of visual content created using generative AI. So Maybe the biggest reason there is this legal consideration, and it does make a lot of sense for them. 
this article also notes that nature does allow the inclusion of text that has been produced with assistance of AI, provided you do this with some caveats and you document that you do it. And you cannot include an LLM tool as an offer on a research paper. Oh. And up next, we have Blush. The AI lover from the same team as Replica is more than just a sex bot. Anything being more than just a sex bot is always an inspiring thing. So Replica, um, just uh, by way of background, we've talked about them before. They make like AI chatbots that have a distinctly kind of like sexual relationshipy vibe to them. Um, you can use them for many different things, but like that's certainly one big category. So now we have Blush, and it comes from the team behind Replica, and it's it's kind of being positioned, it seems, as a, a thing that's helping people build their relationship and intimacy skills, so maybe less uh, directly sexual, though you'll be happy to know that you can get a not-safe-for-work version uh, for $99 a year. So you can buy yourself, presumably, a uh, basically a, an avatar uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever you like for that low, low cost. And um, the, you know, one of the things they flag is Blush introduces users to over a thousand AI crushes and can help them practice emotional intimacy and navigate a bunch of complex issues that they might run into in real life relationships. So again, I mean, this keeps happening ethically. You kind of you see the utility. There are people with crippling social anxiety, and this would be hugely useful for some of those people. Yet at the same time. What are we doing with the mass of humanity here that's using these tools and getting used to living with them? Like, I hate to sound like a Luddite, but this seems like something evolution did not prepare us for. And it kind of, I don't know, you could see the risk of people becoming insular and you know having relationships with AIs that can accommodate their every need. You never learn to kind of balance your preferences with somebody else to accommodate them. You never grow in that way. You know, these are a lot of the ways in which relationships make people better is that kind of compromise facet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, here it is for $99 a year. Yeah, lots, lots we could get into here. Uh, I put it in the synthetic media section because in addition to the text, you do have these user profiles of images that appear to be AI generated. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like imitating, really imitating a dating app like Tinder, but with nothing but AI, unlike that thing we discussed at the beginning, which is a dating app where, where you can kind of semi-automate things. I do think there is value in being able to practice yeah uh, and it does it is a thing that gets you anxious uh, so i can see that but charging 99 dollars to allow for this kind of romantic or uh not safe for work interactions seems somewhat predatory maybe on people who are lonely and you know maybe for them it would be best not to fall into using this too much but from a capitalist perspective, they also might be a good target to make a lot of money. So different sides to this, I think it would be good to be able to practice for people with anxiety, talking to people, but maybe not in this particular way. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And now Redditor creates working anime QR codes using stable diffusion. This is a fun little thing. A Redditor named NH Chow has created artistic QR codes using stable diffusion that are still functional uh, and just look really cool. So 
Uh, this was done using ControlNet that has allowed it to maintain the QR code's data pos positioning while synthesizing an image around it. So also because there's this error correction in QR codes, it's still fairly doable. So yeah, you can now build really cool, cute uh, QR codes if you do, I guess, use them for whatever purpose. Yeah, kind of. Kind of cool. I think uh, you know the title. Uh, title says it here. The examples are kind of cool and very beautiful, yeah. very functional. Go to the link to check out the images if you want to see it. We cannot share <laughs> the visual in the podcast medium. <laughs> and finally, we have Runways Gen Two shows the limitations of today's text to video tech. And so you got Runway. This is a, a pretty prominent uh, Google-backed startup, and um, they put together this their Gen Two model. It's the text to video model and you can feed it text prompts or an existing image and get it to generate video. And this article kind of takes a more, um, uh, what would you say, like negative view perhaps? Critical. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. That's a better term. Um, yeah. They call out basically the low frame rate, the graininess um, and struggles with uh, physics and anatomy um, and, and understanding nuance and prompts. There are also issues about like some questions regarding societal biases and, and that sort of kind of ethical stuff, at least on, on the capabilities piece, you know, I, I think scale, scale always, uh, not, not always, but like scale will likely, at least in my opinion, solve this in the long run. Um, but uh, certainly interesting that we're seeing more and more entries in the text to video category. It feels like this is, what would you say, like mid 2021, uh, what that was for images that feels like we're about there with video. So maybe in six months to a year, we'll have just like mid-journey for video and it's just going to be photorealistic, but not quite there yet. Yeah, I remember we discussed maybe a couple months ago this story that text-to-video is in its meme era and that's still <laughs> accurate. Uh, yes, it still yeah, yeah, yeah. creates these kind of absurd, funny things. I think this article being critical is somewhat fair because Runway did release Gen 2. It wasn't just a research project. Yeah. So if you look at the videos, they do have a ton of flaws. They are not really usable for anything that's not just like a funny meme uh, for the most part. So I think it, it is good for to present the problems that exist and, and to cover kind of a state of the art in a sense. Mm -hmm. There are some fun things you could still do with it. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a current state. Things will improve rapidly, but as we mentioned before, video is still one of these things that AI has a lot of room to improve on. Yeah, I, I was. I guess I'm of two minds in that I look at some of the videos and I'm like, wow, you know, like that. You can you can really see how this is going to get there, um, but yeah, it's definitely not there yet. And you, you're right. Like the release decision is a materially different thing. You actually put it out there in that form, and it's like. You get called out. Yes, you know if you're certainly if you're going to charge people for it. Now, I don't think. Sorry, are they currently charging for access to Gen Two? Yeah, I'm not too sure. I would have to double check, but I do think it's part of their app for people to use. Okay, yeah, I, I couldn't remember if the article explicitly said that for Gen Two, but uh, yeah, in, in, in any case, you know, it's it's um, it, it had been as well in limited waitlisted access before. So like. They had, you know, been trying to debug it, and then they made the affirmative choice to release. So you could, I guess, give them some, give them some flack for that for sure. 
Yeah. Also, when we say videos, we really mean sort of GIFs. It's just a few seconds. Yeah. So you don't want to think of like, you know, five minute video or anything. Yeah, good point. Alrighty, so that is it for this episode. Hopefully the audio quality was better than last week. Uh, if not, then I guess I'll retire and just let an AI replace me. And uh, again, you can go to lastweekin.ai for more articles and the text newsletter. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai with your thoughts and feedback. We'd appreciate it if you review us on Apple Podcasts. I think getting more reviews helps with getting more listens. I don't know, but it does feel nice. But uh, regardless of any of that, please do be sure to keep tuning in.